In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask you, Lord, to be with us, to grant us your peace, and establish for us, O Lord, your peace, and grant us the desires of our heart according to your will. Be with us and open our minds and hearts to you, O Lord, during this one-hour Bible study. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, God willing, today we are going to continue um, studying in the book of Genesis. Um, last time we studied uh, Genesis chapter 2 and part of chapter 3 uh, for the first six verses. Today, we're going to continue where we left off. Um, I'm going to uh, just read um, from the beginning of chapter three, uh, just to, for context, and then we'll continue in detail, starting in uh, Genesis three, uh, verse seven. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Now, this, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. So she took its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So um, up until this point in the chapter, we've seen how uh, Eve was deceived by the serpent to eat of the forbidden fruit, which is from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And having been deceived and eating from it, she then offered it to her husband, Adam, who then also ate. So starting in verse 7, um, which is where we're going to start from today, we're going to see what are the effects of and the consequences of this sin that, um, that they had committed. Okay. So in verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So the question we have when we read this verse is, what does it mean? that they knew that they were naked. What does that mean? I mean, they, they were naked from the beginning and nothing had changed. Why suddenly now did they know that they were naked? What does it mean that they know that they were naked? If anybody has any comments, you can make a comment on the chat um, or if you raise your hand in Zoom, I can um, unmute you. Anybody have any input on that?
Okay. Um, so it, you can kind of think about it kind of as children, right? Um, a child, for instance, might be naked, very young child, right? They, and, 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 and sometimes like um, we know those who are parents, we have to tell our kids, you know, it's like change your clothes in your room. Don't come out of your room when you're changing clothes. And if there's people in the house, you can't just go walking around the house. You have to, you know, understand the idea of privacy, for instance, right? Um, which is something that intrinsically in children is not something that they really understand. Um, it's something that it's something that might be uh, uh, kind of foreign to them to even understand what it, what are we talking about, right? Um, oh, somebody has their hand raised. Go ahead, Faith. Yes, hello, Father. Um, I think um, I think the nakedness. If I'm not mistaken, I was uh, um, reading. Um, Saint Athanasius in his Against the Gentiles, and he was saying that essentially uh, feeling naked was because we're not contemplating uh, God, and it, it was very um, the nakedness was the kind of separation from God. It's very hard to understand, and I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, no, very good. That's correct. Uh, thank you, Fred. Um, so it, it was the realization of one, their separation from God two, their state of corruption. It was experiencing shame because when they had now uh, eaten from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they understood things that are evil, right? Whereas before everything was innocent, everything was good everything they looked at it with eyes of innocence just like a child might look at something that is um dangerous or something that is evil something that is wicked but they look at it with innocent eyes and they don't understand or perceive anything about it that is being shameful or evil or wrong whereas now for the first time adam and eve are experiencing something different they're beginning to experience the result of their separation from god not only the physical death that has now entered into their bodies, but the spiritual death, the separation um, from God, their knowledge of good and evil, the beginning of lustful passions, the beginning of sinful thoughts, like a wave of realization of these things have now entered into them that were not there before. St. Augustine, he says, they experienced a new sensation in their bodies that became rebellious against them as a firm repayment for their rebellion against God. And we begin to see, which is similar to what St. Paul spoke about when he was saying that the good that he wants to do, he is not able to do. And the evil that he finds himself doing, he cannot stop himself from doing. Like at this point, we now have a, a, a separation between the will and, 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 and our ability to perform the will, right? So maybe Adam and Eve, we're now experiencing these temptations that were overcoming them or overwhelming them, right? Things that they had never experienced before, right? And they were now no longer able to withstand the shame of their new status, right? They were not bearing even to look at themselves or to be seen by each other, right? In this new corrupted state. And so their first instinct was to hide themselves, right? They, 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 they sowed these um, fig leaves and made these coverings because they wanted to hide themselves. They didn't want their depravity to be seen um, by, by each other. 
And also, this is where we begin to see that we begin to hide from ourselves, right? And this, you know, um, sometimes we, we we are blinded to who we really are. We are blinded to ourselves, or we want to um, when we when we begin to take a, a good look, a glimpse as at who we really are. We don't like what it is that we find, and we kind of close our eyes to it, not wanting to accept the the corrupted state that is in us, right? And we see this happening from the very very first moment um, of the fall is this idea of, of, of being hidden, of wanting to hide, um, not wanting to be exposed, afraid of being transparent, afraid of being seen and being known as I truly am. And when we begin to put on masks to hide ourselves from other people, that I want other people to uh, believe that I am something that I am not. I, cannot, I am not comfortable with being known exactly as I am because I am afraid, right? And, 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 and a big part of that fear is because of my sinful nature, my sinfulness inside of me, that I always feel like I am hiding, that there is something shameful that I do not want to be seen. Um, so this began to enter into humanity here immediately. And it's interesting that this is the very first thing that the scripture tells us has happened when, when, when after they ate of the fruit is that their eyes were opened, right? Their eyes were opened to something that they could now see that they could not see before that it was not scandalous to them before, that it was not painful to them before. It wasn't, it wasn't something that, that bothered them before. But now suddenly there is a shame associated with their status, right? That they, that they did not have before. <clears throat> and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So, when they put on these uh, fig leaves as clothing for themselves, they, like we said, they were hiding from themselves and they were hiding from each other. But now when they hear the sound of God walking in the garden, they not only are hiding from themselves, but they're hiding from God, who is their creator, right? He, they don't want him to see them. They don't want him to know them. They don't want him to, 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 to you know, rebuke them for what it is that they have done. They were afraid of him. The, the same God who had created them, who had given them all of these great and amazing things, who had prepared all of creation for their sake, who had created Eve for Adam, uh, all of the wonderful things that God had done. Now, when they looked at him, instead of seeing this is uh, my loving father, instead they see someone that I need to fear, someone that I need to escape and run from. And again, this is another status or state that we now are suffering from, that, that when we look at God, now we have to remind ourselves of who he is, that we have to sometimes remind ourselves God still loves us even when we fall. God is still compassionate and good and loving to us even when we uh, disobey him, that God is, is willing to accept us again when we repent, that God wants to restore us again, that God has a good things prepared for us. Now, maybe we, we hide from him. We, we, we feel ashamed even to stand before him in prayer when we sin. We feel uh, that God cannot accept me again. We feel so distant from him that we can never bridge that gulf and come back again to him um, at any time. This, this feeling that sometimes we have when we sin or just about our general state of sinfulness is something that Adam and Eve experienced from the very moment that they fell. Okay, But we notice here that God... Of course, knowing everything that had already happened, it's not that he wasn't aware. He did not wait for mankind to come and apologize to him. He didn't wait somewhere 
were waiting saying, you know what, Adam and Eve, they have broken my commandments and I'm upset with them. And now they have to come to me and to demonstrate repentance and apologize for the sins that they committed. Okay. But actually, no, he says what the, that the Lord God was walking to them. He was going to search for them. He was going to find them. Right. He wasn't waiting for them to make any kind of apology or anything like that. Even though they were too ashamed to approach him, he was not ashamed and he was not disappointed to approach them. But he approached them with his own will and desire to maintain, like to still show them that he loved them. Okay, he made the first move. But instead of them being joyful, like we said, they fled. Right. Um, and instead of being joyful, maybe for us, instead of being joyful at the prospect of a confession, for instance, when we say, well, we need to go confess our sins. How often is it that when we go and confess or the idea of confession is something that brings us fear, something that makes me feel ashamed, something that makes me feel like, well, you know what, if I reveal myself, if I reveal my sins in confession, then um, I will I will be ashamed that the, you know, my father confession will be ashamed of me or I will be embarrassed and so on. This is the same idea here that we see with Adam and Eve, right? God was there present so that they could come and they, he, and, and, and they could confess their sins to him. They could apologize for what they had done. They could repent of what is it that they had done. Um, but here we see them running. And just as we sometimes run from God whenever we sin, and we do not want to approach him, and we feel afraid and nervous to even admit or acknowledge the sins that we have made. Um, and so again, they are hiding, right? They are hiding from him. Um, in, in Hebrews 4.13 it says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So while Adam and Eve felt that they were somehow hiding from God, um, and yet here we read that everything is naked to him. There is nothing that we can do to hide from him, that he sees us always and knows our hearts and minds always. Um, and, and to him is the one who should give account. So, so we might think that somehow we are fleeing or running, but there's actually no way for us to flee. Um, also, St. Ambrose says, the guilty conscience is usually heavy laden so that it punishes itself by itself without need for a judge, seeking to get covered, but would be naked before God. That Again, sometimes we, um, we, we punish ourselves. We blame ourselves when we sin, and we have a guilty conscience that is heavy laden, Right? But does that cause us to seek to confess our sins, to remove that burden from us when we go and confess? Or does it just cause us to cover ourselves more and more and more, whereas in the end, we are still naked before God, right? We punish ourselves um, and keep ourselves away from confession to lighten the load um, because we are afraid. But in the end, it makes no difference because God sees us one way or the other. The confession is there for us. The confession is there so that we can unload the sins that we have committed, not because God is going to somehow be informed of something that he didn't know before. He knows us one way or the other. So again, there's no way to flee, right? There's no way to flee from him. Yes, Faith. Uh, Abuna, I have a question. So um, um, in, the, in the past, I've been encountering this, uh, you're talking about this inherent shame that we feel when we get separated from God. So, okay, God give us this, uh, gave us this grace of, um, repentance and confession. Um, however, I wanna, how can one uh, deal with the shame that one might feel if they are committing a sin 
uh, but they feel shame that they are doing it, like, let's say, in front of unbelievers, you know? Um, if we are, um, you know, being part of idle talk or, um, yeah, um, being being a stumbling block for others how can we recover from that how can we say oh now i'm exposed uh you know i'm i'm a sinner maybe god can understand maybe the priest can understand that i'm a sinner however they won't understand they would be like oh uh i don't know how to he is two-faced or she is two-faced or yeah um even if they are trying to improve they are weak thank you uh thank you I mean, certainly when we do sinful actions in front of other people, um, it can have a negative influence on them for sure, um, which is why when Christ was speaking to the people and he said, um, you know, the one who causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him for a millstone to be tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. Like that's the, the extent by which that Christ is saying that we need to be a good influence on others who are vulnerable and innocent, whom are very um, influenceable, right? That and impressionable, that we can make an influence and impression on them of what is it that we teach them. This is certainly true. But at the same time, when, when we have a weakness um, and we come to God and ask sincerely for his forgiveness, then all is forgiven. When we are seeking forgiveness from God, this does not mean that the consequences of our mistakes are erased. You know, like, if, if someone commits a murder, okay, um, they're going to go to prison, even if they confess their sin, even if they repent of what it is that they've done, they're still going to be sentenced to prison. The consequence of the sin that we commit is not erased, which is why um, it is very important that we learn self-control and we, we try our best to keep, um, you know, keep our sins away from the eyes of those who would see us and suffer because of the sins that I commit. You know, the, the best, maybe the most common example of this is parents, right? Because, you know, as parents, we are given the lives of other very impressionable people for us to raise and to, 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 to grow them and to teach them. And they are going to learn more by our actions than by our words. And it is to them that we are called to, um, to, to, to teach. And, and that's why, uh, you know, a lot of times, when people become parents, they begin to really change their lives. They begin to go to church more. They begin to pray more. They, 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 they tell themselves all of these old habits that I've been doing, I cannot continue in these anymore because, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's something that's now not just harming me, but it's harming other people. So, so you're right in that sense that, that, you know, the actions that we do uh, affect others, but, Again, like when we go to, to, to God and ask for his forgiveness, we receive forgiveness from him. Uh, the, the verses I was speaking about um, that St. Paul was speaking in Romans chapter 7, this is um, in, um, uh, in Romans 7, uh, 15. Okay, this is Saint Paul, what St. Paul is saying. He's saying, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who, who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, 
but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice, right? So he, even St. Paul is speaking about this struggle that we have in ourselves, that we know what is right, and yet we, because of our weakness, fail to do what is right. And unfortunately, that failure sometimes does happen in front of other people. We ask God and we pray that he uh, free us from these vices and these weaknesses and that he protects those around us from being negatively influenced by our actions. But it's definitely something that does and can happen. <clears throat> okay, verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Why do you think God asked this question? Where are you? What kind of question is this? What do you think? Mina. So, so based on this question, it feels like as if God is asking Adam, um, um, Adam, uh, I'm looking for you. Uh, why are you uh, hiding from me? And that's what uh, that's what God is asking him. Like in other words, God is asking him, um, um, Adam, uh, why why did you uh, why did you hide from me? I'm looking for you. Very good. That's exactly right. Um, and Fetty said it's a call to repentance, which also it is. It's kind of like God is going to them and he's saying, look at yourself. Where, where, where were you before and where have you fallen now? Right? God wanted to start a dialogue with, with Adam. And he wanted Adam to begin to look at himself and look how things have changed. Right? He, he wanted him to reflect on what it is that has happened. Where was I before? I was living in peace and comfort. I didn't have any of these lustful passions. I didn't have death that entered into me, right? Be before that he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now where I am, where am I? I'm hiding from God. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hide wearing these uh, fig leaves. Uh, I'm afraid. I can't stand the presence of God. You know, look, look where you have fallen, right? And, and, and God does want him to repent. God does want him to change. He wants to have this dialogue with us. When, when you know, this is the mark of, of love. When God comes and he wants to talk, God could have at any time simply declared his judgment, right? At any time, God could simply come and declare his judgment. But from this time, from the time of Adam and Eve, all the way until the present, God has been asking us this question, where are you, right? Where are you? Are you with me? Are you far from me? Where are you? Are you, are you in the church? Are you far from the church? You know, where are your thoughts? Are your thoughts, you know, pure or are your thoughts impure? Everything about us, God is saying, where are you? Always ask ourselves this question. God is saying, ask yourself, where, are, where am I? Who am I? What am I doing? Right? And, and the incarnation is all about this question. When God comes to us and he says, where are you? You know, are you with me? Come with me. I want you to be with me. And he gives us these invitations all the time. Come with me. Come be with me. I want you to be with me. The time where these questions is going to end, where there will be no more question and there will be no more dialogue, is at the second coming. You know, when we read about the second coming, 
it kind of has this feeling of, of there's going to be an immediate change. There's going to be an immediate judgment. There's going to be not any even single moment to offer repentance in that moment. There will be no moment for change. There will be no moment for speaking. There will be no moment for defending ourselves. There will be nothing. All there will be is judgment on that moment. Whereas everything prior to that moment, there is dialogue. There is opportunity. There is God listening. There is God speaking to us and having this dialogue. And so he wants us to respond to this dialogue, right? And he wanted Adam here to respond. He wanted to hear what Adam had to say. He wanted Adam to think in himself, like, where, from where have I fallen, right? And what can I do now? There is options for me. There is still a path forward for me. God did not, in the moment of sin, decide that he is going to condemn Adam and Eve. But actually, he's now giving them an opportunity, right? There is still a future. There is still opportunity to repent. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself, right? So Adam is responding now, and he's answering this question, you know, um, where am I? I'm hiding from you, right? Which is, you know, an honest answer. I heard that you were coming near. I was afraid. Why? I was afraid because now I am aware of my own sinfulness, my own shame, my nakedness. I am aware that what I did was against your commandment. And I do not want you to see me, right? I do not want you to see. I'm hiding myself from you. And I, and I wanted to, to, to not be seen so that you will not judge me, so that you will not um, you, that I will not receive the consequence that I deserve from you, right? You will be angry with me. I do not want you to see me, right? I could not bear to be exposed to you, right? Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a very interesting response, right? When, when Adam says this, right? And he says, I heard your voice simply at the hearing of your voice, simply at hearing you coming. I couldn't even bear to be in your presence, right? And again, sometimes there are those who spend their lives fleeing from God because of this. I cannot bear to hear your voice. Your voice is a, convicts me of my life, of my sin. And yet I feel so in bondage to my life, to the choices, to the sins that I cannot or choose not to, uh, to leave behind, that I cannot bear to hear your voice, right? Someone who is choosing to live a life in sinfulness, while at the same time knowing deep down that this is wrong, is someone who cannot bear to hear the voice of God, right? And, and who tries to silence these voices, this voice that's coming from God, the voice of the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. I, I silence this voice because I know that I am naked. I know that I'm living in a sinful life. And so I hide myself. I try to flee and run away. And maybe I make different excuses to explain to myself, why is it that I flee? Why is it that I do not go to church anymore? Why is it that I do not read the Bible anymore or pray anymore? I make up reasons, perhaps. I say, you know what? This isn't really for me. Uh, I really don't believe in God anymore. This is not a practical life, whatever the reasons I might give for myself. But really, deep down, the reason is I cannot bear to hear your voice because I am living in sin and I am naked and I, I don't know how to return and I don't want to return or I'm afraid to return or I feel like you will not accept me if I try to return, whatever the reason might be that we live in this state of hiding, hiding away from God. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? So God is now connecting these two things together. He's connecting the event of what happened, right? The eating from the tree to the current state that Adam realizes that he's naked. 
And he reminds them, remember, this is the tree I told you not to eat from, right? I was trying to protect you from what's happened to you right now, right? He's not saying this to try to make man feel guilty. He's saying this saying, I, out of my love for you, didn't want you to eat of this tree because now you are experiencing, right? The result of the sin that you have committed, right? And I wanted to spare you this. I told you, do not eat from it so that you will not surely die. And this is now the consequence that you're experiencing is this death. Who told you that you were naked? Why now are these lustful and sinful passions arising up in you, right? They are coming because you ate of this and you, um, you, you, uh, you sinned, right? You sinned against me. So God is here continuing this dialogue, right? He's continuing this dialogue and he wants to remind them that he is the one who is trying to keep them from falling into this to begin with, okay? Um, and so he asked this other question, who told you, right? Who told you that you are naked? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave of me of the tree and I ate. So here is the next step in this process of falling, right? Is now the man starts to, instead of taking responsibility, right? Instead of taking responsibility for himself in this moment, instead of him just coming to God and saying, I was wrong, it was my fault, I should not have eaten of it. Who knows what would have happened? You know, who knows what God's response would be? We, we, we read about like um, in the story of Jonah and the Ninevites, when God declared his judgment on Nineveh and said that this city of theirs was going to be destroyed and he gave no option for repentance. He didn't say uh, repent or else I, I will destroy. He just said it will be destroyed, right? And yet when Jonah preached to them and they uh, repented, God relented from his destruction of the city, right? Who knows what would have happened in this moment if Adam had actually declared that he was wrong, that he should not have eaten instead of what blaming someone else and justifying what it is that he had done. So here immediately we see what this division that begins to happen between the man and the woman. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. He did not take any responsibility. He blamed Eve. He, you know, he didn't think to himself or, or, you know, that he, he was made in the image of God. He had the free will to resist, right? Even though it was offered to him by his wife, she, 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 he could have refused her. He could have refused from eating it. And he was accountable for what it is that he had done, right? We are called to resist sin regardless of who is it that offers it to us, you know, whether it be someone close to us, whether it be a friend or even a family member or someone who offers it um, even out of, you know, you know, like, like, like the, the temptation might be more because we, it's being offered to us by someone who is close to us. But here we see what we are still accountable for the sins that we commit, even when it is offered by someone as close to us as our husbands or wives, right? Someone very close. We are called to be accountable and not to blame our sins on somebody else, okay? Um, so now having asked the man, right, and, and saying what, uh, and he said what, that it is the woman, right? He didn't even, he didn't even refer to her as my wife. It says the woman you gave me, like, it's your, you're the one who gave her to me to begin with. Like he's, he's also partly blaming God in this because he's saying, you're the one who gave her to me. If you did not give her to me, then maybe I would not have fallen, right? So he's not only blaming the woman, but he's blaming God himself, right? No accountability at all. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Notice that, that God has not rebuked the man for the way that he spoke, right? He didn't, he didn't tell Adam, how dare you talk to me this way? 
you're, you're, you are blaming the, the woman, you are blaming me for giving her to you. Remember that when you saw her, what did you say? Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's what you said when I gave her to you. I gave her you something that was good. And now you are blaming me for what happened, right? God did not say this. He didn't answer Adam this way, but he was very gentle in his answer. So, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We see the exact same thing. She is deferring responsibility to someone else, right? She takes no responsibility. Even though, yes, she was deceived by the serpent. And yet what? She is responsible for her own choices because God gave her the knowledge of God. He told her what was right and what was wrong, right? And he gave her free will. So because she knew right from wrong and because she had free will, she could not be exempted from, you know, consequence or responsibility for this sin that she committed. Um, in John 8, 44, it speaks now about the devil, about his nature. It says, uh, speaking about him, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. He is the father of lies. Every single word that the devil speaks is a lie. And if he speaks something that is not directly a lie, it is because it is a truth that is part of a bigger lie, right? This is the only means by which the devil operates. Everything he does is about lying, which is why the woman should never have been in a conversation with him to begin with, because there would be no way she can win the conversation, right? Anytime we have a conversation with the devil, we will always lose, even when we are speaking about something that is true. That's why the scripture says we should just flee the devil, flee from him, run away from him. He, he is not someone that we should stand up and try to defeat. We, we run, right? We flee from him. And so here she was deceived. And, and, and she realized right here when it says the serpent deceived me, she realized that she was deceived, right? But as we said last time, she had this desire inside of herself to be like God. It wasn't simply a deception that was foreign to her. The devil simply told her what she herself already wanted. She wanted to be like God. The devil offered her something and told her this is going to make you, this is going to fulfill your desire, which is to be like God. And so she ate. So as we said before, the devil does not force us to do something against our will, but he offers us something that might already be inside our hearts, like a perverse desire that I have. And so when he offers it to me, it just makes it easier for me to achieve what it is that I already want. So now God looks to the serpent, okay? Again, God did not rebuke the woman here. He did not tell her anything, okay? Um, someone is saying, how do you run away from the devil or temptation? It's a good question. Running away from temptation is it's, it's many different things, right? Many different things. It's not just one thing. And, 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 and the best thing or the, the most successful part of this is how we choose to live our life on a regular basis. What is it that I allow myself to see? What is it that I allow myself to hear? What is it that I allow myself to speak or to think? Who is it that I spend time with? What are the activities that I spend time with? How much spiritual uh, activities do I do on a regular basis? Like reading the Bible, reading spiritual books, going to church, taking communion, uh, these are all part of like building up our defenses against the devil so that he stays far away from us, right? Um, 
the way that I choose to live, the decisions that I choose to make, this this plays a big part in how easy it is that I'm going to be deceived by the devil. Because we become sensitive, right? When the Holy Spirit is active in me, I am sensitive to the deception of the devil. And I can quickly pick it out when I'm being tempted, when I'm being led down a path that is destructive, right, for me. Um, the more that I am with God and I read the word of God, the more sensitive I will be to his attack. Verse 14, so it says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, right? Because you have done this deception, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly, you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Okay. So the curse of the serpent was that now he would be crawling on the ground, eating the dust of the earth, right? On his belly. Okay. So notice here that the serpent, um, God did not ask him any questions, right? The man and the woman, right? The man, he asked what? He said, who told you that you were naked? Or he heard, uh, uh, he asked him, um, where are you, right? And then he told him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, right? God is speaking to Adam. Then when it comes to Eve, he's speaking to Eve. He says, what is it that you have done? Okay, and the woman responded, the serpent deceived me. When he got to the serpent, he didn't ask the serpent any questions because the serpent is condemned, right? The serpent is the father of lies. The serpent is the devil who has already been condemned, okay? So he just simply told the, the judgment of the serpent. There was no option for the serpent. He, the, the God just told the serpent, because you have done this, and here is your consequence, right, of what he has done. So the serpent has no one to blame because he is the source of evil. He is the evil one. Nobody influences the devil to be evil. The devil is the source of evil for everyone else. Okay. So all lies, all deception, all sin comes from him. Okay. So God is simply explaining now his consequence, right? Of what it is that's happening to him. Okay. So for the, for the serpent, he says what? The serpent was cursed to slither on the ground, right? He is, um, he is like attached to the dust of the earth. He's on the earth, eating the dust of the earth. Symbolically, he cannot rise up above this <clears throat> dust, symbolically like toward heaven. Like he has no redemption. He has no way to lift himself up. He has no path of salvation. Um, he is, he is, this is his permanent consequence, right? Eating the dust uh, of the earth. And then now too, uh, oh, and he continues and he says, I will put enmity between you. Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But what is this referring to? Okay. Enmity means to become enemies, right? So, so who is it that will become enemies? The serpent, because he's speaking here to the serpent when he says you and the woman. Okay which means humanity, okay? So there will be uh, enmity between the devil and humanity. They are enemies, okay, from now on. And between your seed, all right, and her seed, right? Her seed, and notice that the word seed here is capitalized. Her seed means her offspring, her descendants, right? Not her immediate descendants, but from her, who, are, who is going to be one of her descendants is going to be the Messiah, okay? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
he shall bruise your head, meaning that he will trample on your head. He will destroy you. Okay. Right. He will stomp on the head of the serpent through the cross. Okay. In Colossians 2.15, it says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Right. He disarmed principalities and powers. Right. These evil powers, the devil himself. He triumphed over it. He, he's trampled on them. He crushed him. He crushed the devil. He destroyed the kingdom of Satan because he has now freed all of the righteous people from his kingdom in Hades and brought them up to paradise. And he makes for us a place in heaven with him. So the cross has granted salvation while everyone up until that point uh, of the cross had been under the power and influence of Satan that no one could be freed from his dominion and power that every single person who died up until that point entered into his domain. And yet now after that, we are free, right? And the devil has been defeated, okay? But he's saying what? The serpent will remain active, right? Because he's saying you shall bruise his heel. The serpent is bruising his heel, meaning he will remain active. He will injure those who fall from the, from the exalted life of faith down to the dust where the serpent dwells, meaning the devil is always going to be lying in wait. Anyone who wants to, to, to fall, anyone who falls from uh, this life with Christ, anyone who, who, who exhibits weakness and sin is going to now be consumed by him. Okay, um, St. Augustine says, the serpent has his eyes on you as you fall down with pride. You should watch his head, namely the pride being the head of all his sins, of, of all sins. So it's like, like in, um, in the scripture where it says the, the devil is roaming like a, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? This is what the devil does. He was always watchful. He's always looking for any opportunity to deceive, to tempt, to, to cause us to fall. He wants us to fall away, right? And so he can consume us, right? But, the, but, the, but Christ has given the ultimate victory over him by bruising his head, by stomping on his head. So here he says now that the, the, the humanity and the devil are going to be enemies. Okay, so that is the uh, like the consequence of Satan. Now he turns to the woman. What is the consequence now that's going to come to the woman? To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire, desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Okay. So having given the serpent his sentence, he's now speaking to her. Up until this point, if you know, we, we still have not heard any real words of uh, repentance. All, all we've heard is blaming like others, okay? Um, St. Ephraim said, Adam and Eve should grow afraid and repent so that there might be a possibility for grace to preserve them from the curses of justice. But when the serpent had been cursed, and Adam and Eve still made no supplication, God came to them with punishment. He came to Eve first because it was through her that the sin was handed on to Adam. So St. Ephraim is saying now, having even heard, you know, the God speaking to the serpent, they could have now begun to speak and offered repentance, and yet they had not, okay? Um, so as to the specific consequences here that is given to the woman when, she, when God says that he will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. So one of the unique abilities that God had given to the woman, obviously, was that she was the one who was to give birth. She was the one who was to, 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 to help in the procreation, 
right? Through this unique ability that only the woman can do. That women not only can physically give birth, but women often have a very, very strong desire to have children, right? This is, this is something that's very, very important to most women. So not only now is the actual giving of birth going to be difficult and painful, right? But now a big part of the work of the woman, which had to do not only with the birth, but in raising children and so on, was now going to be difficult. So the physical act of giving birth was now painful to her. And the act of raising children is difficult, right? Everything has become difficult, right? In pain, you shall bring forth children, right? I will multiply your sorrow and your conception, okay? Also, it says what? Her desire shall be for her husband and he shall rule over you, right? She is now to live in submission to her husband and he will have authority over her, okay? This is not speaking about the idea of the husband being the head of the wife, Okay, so, you know, we, we read about in the New Testament about how the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Okay, we, we, we read about this in Ephesians 5, uh, where it says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. So also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Okay. This command that was given by Christ, which governs the relationships in marriage between the husband and the wife, this is not what's being spoken of here, because what's being spoken of here is a curse, right? What's being spoken of here is something bad, that, that is a consequence that's coming to the woman because of the sin that she committed. But when, when, when St. Paul in Ephesians is speaking about the relationship between husbands and wives, this is not a curse. This is speaking about the way that God intended right? That just as the Christ is the head of the church and Christ is to love uh, the church, right? That also husbands are called to be the head of the wife and to love their wives as Christ loves the church, right? So, so that relationship between the husband and wife and between Christ and the church is a holy relationship, right? That is not this, what's being described here, where he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, right? Instead, this was to say, um, that the woman is now being subjected to the will of her husband, right? That she's being somehow oppressed by her husband, that he is now having authority over her and telling her what is this that she must do, okay? So this, this is more in line with this curse as opposed to the, the intended relationship, the loving relationship between the husband and wife. Then Adam, uh, then to Adam, so now he's given the, the curse to the serpent, he's given the curse to Eve, and now he's speaking to Adam. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. So what God had originally intended for Adam Okay, which was that he would be responsible for the world, that he would, um, you know, have this responsibility to tend the earth, which was a joyful thing for him. Now his work is to become painful. And whereas before, all of the food that had been given to Adam and Eve was given freely in the garden, that they could eat of all of this food without having to work for it, now they would have to work to till the ground and that it would be a painful and toilsome work. So essentially speaking to the man, he's saying, you are now going to have to do difficult work in order to survive, in order to live. 
that 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 work is going to not be easy. It's going to be painful, right? Nothing was going to be given um, for free. And again, when you think about the man who um, has this intrinsic desire to to work and have responsibility and to protect the family and so on, now this has become much more difficult job, right? It's not just about me working and and everything is going smoothly. Now it's a difficult work, right? It's something difficult, and I, I have to maintain this difficult work in order to keep protecting my family and to bringing them, uh, you, you know, to, to bring them safely and to provide for them and so on. Okay. Um, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it, you were taken for dust. You are and to dust you, you shall return. Okay. So he goes on and he says, um, in the sweat of your face, like this is going to, again, going to be difficult work in order for you to eat bread, meaning to make a living for yourself, to have food and so on. And then finally to return to the ground. And here is speaking about death, right? That ultimately your body, right? Which has now been corrupted is going to die, which was not the original plan or intention, but that your body is going to age and it's going to, uh, it's going to die for out of it, you were taken from the dust. And to dust you shall return again. It will revert back to its form. The breath of life that God had gave was not going to sustain the body forever because now the body had become corrupted. So there was like a time limit on his life. But in the resurrection, when Christ uh, resurrected, what is it that God did? He turned this consequence of death into something good. Because because when death entered the body, it meant that he was physically going to die and it meant that he was separated from God. But when Christ rose from the dead, he made this death to be a death of the corruption, a death of the corrupted body, which then allowed the spirit to be reunited with God again, right? That is now what death has become to the believer. Death is a death of the corrupted body. This corrupted body that is in union with our spirit is what keeps us here in the world. When our body dies, our spirits go back to God. So our corrupted body is here. When our corrupted body dies, our spirits are released, are free to go to God again. So what keeps us in this state is this corruption of the body. Death is what actually frees us from the state. So God turned what was a curse, which was death. He's now turned it into something good that actually can restore us again to the original state God had made. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Okay, the, the word Eve means living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Okay, um, oh, sorry. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Okay. What are these tunics of skin and why did he make them? Okay, So obviously, his, his, Adam and Eve, again, we said that they had been naked, so they needed to have clothes now. Okay, um, But how did God make the clothes? He made them of tunics of skin. These are the skin of animals. Okay, that, And these animals, in order, to, uh, in, in, in order to get the skin, you had to kill the animal. Okay, So what does this kind of represent? It represents the animal sacrifices right, that were to be made for the forgiveness of sins. This is the first mention of the of a killing of, of an animal, right, in the scripture. The idea that God is going to kill an animal 
He's going to take the tunics of skin from the animal and he's going to dress Adam and Eve with them, right? This points to the bloody sacrifices that were later going to be performed in the Old Testament for the forgiveness of sins, which were all from animals, and then also points to the sacrifice of the cross, right? St. Ambrose, he says about these coats of skin that they were also like a symbol of the labor for the works of repentance. And he said, um, God clothed them with the coats of skin and not of silk, meaning that these are, it's like a difficult uh, path of repentance, that I have to do spiritual struggle, that I have to like, um, like, like really wrestle with uh, myself and uh, to attain virtue, to grow um, in God, to have spiritual progress and to repent of my sins and so on. So again, like this, uh, tunics of skin represent the bloody sacrifice. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So we see here now man, Adam and Eve are, are ejected from the Garden of Eden, okay? And what is the reasoning why, right? It's very interesting to read the reason. He says, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay, so that's interesting that he would say that. Okay, we have a, we have a question here. Fedi. Yes, Father. So this is a very interesting uh, verse. I, I forgot the previous question, but this this one so um when satan or the serpent was talking to eve uh, he was like don't worry you're not gonna you're not gonna die uh god just doesn't want you to be like him uh knowing good and evil so one of the uh, many atheistic claims is oh god didn't want you to be like him knowing good and evil uh, actually satan is a freeing is very freeing you know, he wanted you to know good and evil. Uh, look how oppressive God is. Um, how can, first, how can we respond to this? And what does it mean that we now know good and evil? What does it mean what? What does it mean that we know good and evil now? As, to, as opposed to before where, mm, mm, like, we didn't know good and evil? Or did we? I don't know. Uh, because... God is saying, behold, the man has become like one of us. Uh, again, it, it just reminds me of Isaiah 14, where uh, Satan wanted to become like God. He didn't even perceive of something higher. Uh, can, is, is, is there like, um, it seems like Satan is being believable. That's what I'm saying. Is being he, what? Believe? Believable, yeah. He, in in, in, in no, God forbid. But what I'm saying is, in verse 3, he's saying, uh, or, yeah, in verse 4, he was saying, this, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we learn from the church tradition that, you know, Satan sometimes might say something true to make a, a lie believable. Mm -hmm. So, it appears that in verse 22, God is saying, oh, the believable part actually is that now you behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Uh, but the lie was that actually, no, we, we, 
we are getting the consequence of that. So what I'm saying is, Abuna, how can we respond to the, that question that it is the claim that Satan is freeing because, hey, God was an oppressive, was being oppressive by not wanting us to know, to have the knowledge. You okay, know, I understand. That we... Yeah, thank you, Faith. Um, so I guess the fundamental question we ask is, is the knowledge of good and evil something that is always good for us to have? You know, like for instance, um, for young children, let's say, because really to God, we are like his children, his young children, like impressionable, innocent. So if we go to our young children and we tell them all the good and evil things in the world, right? What is it that we are doing to them? We might be scandalizing them. Like we might be giving them information that is harmful to them even though it's true even 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 though it is accurate and the certain evil acts that we are going to describe to them actually happen and we're giving them knowledge but it doesn't mean that all knowledge is edifying right there is there is knowledge that we cannot handle right there is knowledge that we cannot take right which is why god does not give us all knowledge right he he, he does not give us everything all at once and he wants to protect us from things that could be harmful to us, just as we protect our children from things that are harmful. So as we mentioned last time, it is not to say that God would have forever uh, denied Adam and Eve any knowledge of good and evil, but that they at this stage had been too uh, innocent and ignorant for them to learn all of this all at once by eating of this tree. So, so God wanted Adam and Eve to grow, but they could not have grown instantly in this way by, by knowing this. So when he says like becoming like one of us, God knows all good and all evil, but God is not going to be negatively harmed or damaged or affected by any knowledge because he is God. So, so it is not to say, so what the devil did is he took, he said a half truth. He said, yes, when you, um, when, when you eat of this tree, you will have good knowledge of good and evil, just as God has knowledge of good and evil. But it doesn't mean that you will be able to handle it the way that God can handle it. it. doesn't mean that you will be able to do good with it, right? Just as God is doing. So here, when God is saying, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, right? This is true, but this isn't something that was beneficial to man, right? Something that can harm him, which is what God was preventing, wanted, wanted man to be um, protected from this, okay? So, but also, like we said last time, the knowledge of the good and evil itself is not what brought death, right? Maybe the knowledge of good and evil could be harmful to man, but what is it that brought death? It was the disobedience of God's commandment, right? Because that is what separated them from God is because God told them not to eat of the tree, and but yet they chose to eat of the tree. And that is what brought death to them. So what God is saying here is, the other tree that was in the that was in the garden, which was the tree of life, if they were to eat of that tree, then they would live forever. They would not die, okay, physically. So if they had now been in the state of corruption that they are in now, because of having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil against God's command and being separated from God, if they were to eat of the tree of life now, what would have happened to them? They would have lived eternally but in a state of corruption. There would be no way for them to be restored again because they would continue corrupt in a corrupted state. Imagine that it's like we are here on the earth as we are, and we are going to live forever in this state with our sinfulness, with our lusts, 
with, with all the corruption that is in us, that there would be no way for, for that to be undone. There would be no way for, for us to draw, draw any closer to God because we are now going to be eternally in this state of corruption that we are in. So he's saying in order for the death that has come into, uh, into man because of his corrupted state, in order for that physical death to actually happen, and God was going to turn that physical death into something good, like we said, in, through his resurrection, that he had to allow man to die, right? Because physically dying is what is going to allow us to return again to the state of innocence and incorruption that God wanted us to be in from the beginning, okay? So he said, I cannot give man access anymore to the garden because if he were to eat of the tree of life, right? He would live forever in this state of corruption, okay? Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken, okay? So what is it that God did? He didn't cancel death. He didn't say, you know, because I love my children, I'm just going to undo what I had said. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to just say, you know what, I'm just going to cancel death so that death is no longer a thing and you're just going to not be corrupted anymore or anything. He didn't go against what he said because God is a perfect, just God. He, he, he could not have just said, I'm just going to ignore what it is that I have said previously. Okay. But he, what he did, he did do is he said, I'm going to take this death that now has come on you and I'm going to remove its power. Right, Because ultimately what's going to happen is that he is going to die instead of us. And through his death, we are now, once we die, able to return back to God again. Okay, So by removing man okay, from the garden, he was going to taste the bitterness uh, of his sin that would ultimately cause him to feel his need for God. Right. So, so, so when Adam goes out of the garden... He is now going to always constantly be reminded of his corrupted state. Imagine as Adam that you were going to think back again as to how things used to be in the garden and, 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 and realize that it is because of my own sin, it is because of my own bad choices that I have brought myself to this place that I am in. I need God as a savior. I need God for salvation, right? And this was the beginning of the whole process of salvation that began in man from the very beginning. So, so, so. Adam and Eve are going to be constantly being reminded of their need to return to God again, kind of like the prodigal son. The prodigal son, when he reached that point, that lowest point, where he realized, I'm the one that brought all this on myself, but he realized that his father would accept him. He said, I will return again to my father. And this is kind of the, the same situation here with Adam and Eve. They are, um, they, they are like, uh, you know, in a state of suffering, that has really been brought about by, the, by their own sins, by their own choices, and, and we are in need to return to God again. St. John Chrysostom said, paradise was given to man, and when he proved not worthy of it, he was driven out. For staying out and feeling insulted, he would turn to a better condition through repentance to be worthy of returning. And this then is the whole, essentially our, our whole human condition that we are living in, since then up until this point now is we are in the process of being reminded always that we are need to return to god right and because of the resurrection of christ we have now the ability to return we have now the 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 we do not need to fear death anymore because what had originally been something that separated us completely from god now our physical death is something that allows us to even draw closer to god to be restored to the original state that god had created us in
Okay. So then he concludes and he says, so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this cherub uh, or this cherubim, they prevented the man from entering the garden again, lest he ever try to enter again. Okay. So this is uh, the account of the fall of man, um, that we can learn a lot of important lessons from it. Again, I mean, I'm sure, you know, we have maybe a lot of questions that are not answered uh, here as to a lot of details. But like we said at the beginning, um, this book is not trying to write a complete historical account of every detail of things that had happened, but it is for our edification and our salvation to understand where we came from and how is it that we should live uh, moving forward. Okay. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Uh, let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and I ask you, O God, to always bless our time together. Be with us and be with all your people in our church and in every church. Bless those, O Lord, who are suffering and grant them peace and teach us, O Lord, always how to serve one another and to give of ourselves to others. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever.